Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly. What's the newest horror movie you could consider a classic? I hear on episode 36 of the podcast, we asked half a million horror fans online, what's the most recent in time to us horror movie you could consider a classic? And we're here with their answers and ours. And this voting and subject went into weird uh, places that I did not expect. Apparently this subject has a face on the other side of the face like Gabriel from Malignant that I was not aware was there. And I think maybe it's the word classic that kind of steered things a little bit. Maybe the word has like a connotation of prestige or it's you don't necessarily think of just like a straight ahead fun gory movie as a classic, especially not recently. But you'll see what I mean when we get into the voting. And there's the question of what does this subject even mean as well? So, like, someone had brought up on in the voting a really good point of, I don't even let myself think of a movie as a classic until, like, 20 years have gone by. And I respect that point of view. I probably could have worded the question better. I meant it more, and I think a lot of people took it as... So I think of it like this. If you had walked out of the theater after seeing John Carpenter's The Thing, the year it was released, and you had turned to your friends on the way out and been like, this fucking movie is a classic. Well, you couldn't have known then <laughs> that you were right. But if you had gone home and like written an article and somehow gotten it submitted to a, a horror magazine, you would be remembered now as like a prophet since <laughs> The Thing was pretty much rejected upon its release. So like, was it a classic when you walked out of the theater and said that? I mean, not yet, but it was going to be. So this is more about predicting what what the recent movies that have gone by, where you don't have to reach all the way back to like the 80s or early 90s or who knows what kind of horror fan you are, maybe the 70s, to be assured of a classic. This is more of like, place your bets. You know, as I'm recording this episode, it's the uh, anniversary of the release of David Cronenberg's The Fly. And I posted about it on our pages. And there are so many amazing comments of people describing their theater experience or first time experience of seeing The Fly and how it impacted the audience. People were running from the theaters. People in their seats were super grossed out. And you can tell by the way people are reminiscing about this that it's super fun and incredibly memorable moments and also an incredibly constructed and executed movie. And I think that's what I'm looking for when I say classic. It's not just just that it's super well made and boring or doesn't try anything like new or interesting or subversive. To me, it's got kind of got to do both. Even if the movie isn't fun and there are some movies that were way high up in the voting here, like I'll just give a spoiler on one of them, St. Maud, that I don't consider a fun watch. But it is fun to reminisce about later because the ending of St. Maud, for example, might be one of the few things you remember from any of the horror movies you saw around the time that you saw St. Maud or even for that year. A lot of stuff just sort of blends together. And then there's that something that sticks out. And to me, that's an important element of being considered a classic. 
So let's get into the voting here. And I got to say, thank you, everyone who participated in the voting. There were thousands of comments and votes. And I was really gratified to see that there was very little of answers like none. (laughs) There's no answer to this question. There hasn't been a good horror movie since 1988, etc. I'm glad, even though some people might have felt that way, that they were willing to be open-minded enough to be part of this conversation. Love it. So let's start this out. I'm going to go in reverse order, um, get the movies that got some votes but not really high up, and work our way to number one. Then I'll give a couple of the ones that I want to throw in as contenders as well. We'll start out with 2018's Mandy. Really good to see this movie here um, because there were about... 50-ish votes. There were quite a few comments. I'm going to do the comment here from uh, Cindy Botras because she's in our subscriber group. Thank you for the support, Cindy. Appreciate it. And she said, I'm voting for Mandy. It's just a beautiful mix of insane situations, crazy characters, hypnotic visuals, and grindhouse gore. Sounds like a classic recipe of ingredients for me. Now, just ahead of Mandy... With a few votes more, we have last year's Speak No Evil. Very interesting comment kicked off the voting for this one, where David Joshua Smith said, I fully expect Speak No Evil to become one of those films like the original The Vanishing that audiences discover and are haunted by for the rest of their lives. Brilliantly horrifying. See, and that's what I was talking about. That's someone who was using the question, the prompt as uh, putting in a comment that was making a prediction. Like, I predict this will become more and more interesting and relevant over time. Um, Hillary Hughes, from my favorite podcast, commented and voted for, (laughs) among other things, she voted for quite a bit, um, Speak No Evil and The Innocents. And she said, after that, I feel like classic things are timeless. And the issues in my list will always hit with people Kids hit folks in the heart, even if you don't like kids. Trust me. And I find this fascinating because the plot of Speak No Evil is basically a couple who lures in other couples into a situation that is dangerous. And the danger couple is constantly testing the boundaries of what they can get away with with the new incoming couple. And in this particular movie, the new incoming couple is so polite. They are so like bending over backwards to make sure the situation is fun and light. They're really non-assertive and it really works against them. Um, And it's funny because there's an echo of that famous line from the movie from The Strangers where the it's the line is because you were home. And in this movie, the variation on it is one of the characters asks one of the villains, why are you doing this? And the character says, because you let me. And I think one of the scenes in modern dark cinema that haunts me the most is the scene with uh, Stellan Skarsgård in David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo when he has Daniel Craig captured. And the way he captured him was he invited him in for a drink. And Daniel Craig's character had a feeling something was wrong, but he just came in anyway. And now he's about to be horribly murdered and completely helpless at the hands of a terrifying serial killer. 
And Skarsgård has this awful line he's sort of saying to himself more than to Daniel Craig, although it's ostensibly him asking him a question, but it feels like he's musing more to himself after his whole long history as a serial killer. He says something to the effect of, why did you come in? They always come in. You all just come in. You know something's wrong. You don't trust your instincts. And you just, it's like a fly in a spider web. And I'm kind of riveted by this mini developing subgenre in horror and dark thrillers of, is politeness like a critical weakness? Is it the path to destruction? You know, I heard another excellent podcast discussing Speak No Evil, the podcast that is named Bloody Good Horror, um, another one of my favorites. And they really got stuck on the plot point of this movie where a the family, so it's not just, I said couple, sorry, but it's basically a family because they're coming in with a child. And the, the kind couple in this one has a child. The, the danger couple also has a child. That's part of what the plot point here is. And it turns out, spoiler, if you want to see this movie, you might want to skip like 30 seconds here, um, that they're basically trading children. Every time they kill a couple, they take their child, they replace their own, theory, or I don't think it's their real child at this point, with this new incoming child in a horrible way and then reconstitute themselves as a new couple and then reset the cycle and do it again. And on Bloody Good Horror, they were like, we wanted backstory to this. Like, why are they doing this? Why why even have a child around if you're just serial killers? Why do you need the extra you know, baggage of carrying around and having to deal with the child? Just kill the couples, right? And I think the answer to this question is actually given us to us by the movie There Will Be Blood. Because it's strongly hinted in There Will Be Blood that Daniel Day-Lewis's character uh, uh, took an orphan child and claimed it for his own because he knows the child helps him sell his business. He's using the child as bait. Like, it, it cuts his intensity. Instead of just the terrifyingly intimidating Daniel Day-Lewis in a room pitching you on letting him set up shop on your land and drill for oil there. He presents himself as, I'm a family man. I'm a single father. It makes him sympathetic. It gives him an air of responsibility and stability. And I think the serial killer couple's point in Speak No Evil is it's easier to lure people in when they see you as a family. They don't expect families to be a threat. And if you think of that as the reason why it's happening, it's actually even more awful. And Speak No Evil is definitely one of those movies that you that sticks in your head and you think about for days and longer afterwards. I mean, this movie has a literal deaths by stoning. I mean, I haven't even thought of death by stoning since like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. So I think Speak No Evil is definitely a worthy contender to be considered a classic in uh, 10 years or however long it takes to become a classic in your uh, metrics. Okay, a little bit ahead of those two movies is 2017's The Ritual. And again, this is interesting because The Ritual is a fantastic movie and book, but that means that the people voting for that are saying that they don't, they can't take a guess on any movie 
past 2017. So they're not willing to vote any for any movie. That's So they're saying The Ritual is the newest one they think could be a classic. And that's part of why I wanted to do this, because I wasn't just interested in what movies were going to be voted on, but where in time people were going to place their votes. So, for example, with uh, the first movie we're going to talk about here, they got more than 100 votes. We have last year's Barbarian. Hannah Cunningham said, Barbarian is the last new horror film I watched where I actually felt like I was watching something new, very original and interesting. Would love a sequel or would have liked more story about the man and the origins. But I think this is very good. And with a few dozen votes more than Barbarian, we have 2020's The Invisible Man from Lee Winnell. Now, I've talked about my love for this movie quite often on this podcast, so I'm not going to do it again. I'm just glad to see it got into the top tier of voting. I think something else fascinating is happening here as well in the pattern of the voting, which is we're not seeing a lot of sequels or remakes. I mean, Invisible Man is theoretically a remake, but really has nothing to do with James Whale's original except for some, you know, really clever Easter eggs and shout outs buried in it. But it's not like I was seeing a bunch of voting for Scream 6 or Conjuring 3 or Insidious The Last Key. People were really associating classic with original, which I like. Our first 200 vote getter is Saint Maud from 2019, I believe. Now, St. Maud is a great movie, and its devastating ending has a lot in common with one of the two contenders I'm going to be personally throwing in in a little bit in this episode. All right, let's get to the heavy hitters, the movies they got hundreds and hundreds of votes that were separating themselves out of the pack. We're going to start with It Follows. Now, this movie, I think, is pretty divisive. As a matter of fact... I kind of thought in the couple years since I had seen it after it came out that it was going to become like that generation's Blair Witch Project, a movie that was highly regarded and then like everyone turns on it eventually. But it seems to be holding a big chunk, chunk of its audience. And I got to admit, it was on my top list when I started thinking before the voting started of what I would have said. It's just far enough away in time to have gotten enough perspective on it to start thinking of it as a masterpiece or at least reckoning with kind of the after effect and legacy of it. Unlike the Blair Witch Project, it still kind of stands out there on its own, just creepily looking at us. It's an outsider movie. And I think one of the things I appreciate most about the horror genre is how thoughtfully the idea of an outsider is treated. And this movie, when I said legacy, I mean, I don't think I have seen a lot of movies that have tried to do what It Follows did. Sure, it affected in some of the way it was shot and some of the, the use of music, the dis disaster piece. But It Follows is like a horror trivia question. <laughs> I think I even did this on our page once. Like, w what horror movie has the most villains in it. I think the number is like 19 or 22, could even be higher, something like that, of actors who played the entity in It Follows. And the thing is, I'm a big fan of David Mitchell, the director of It Follows. And I think 
he might have two films that are going to be recognized as classics backwards that weren't really recognized in their time because Under the Silver Lake is a flat-out masterpiece. If I could have considered Under, Under the Silver Lake as a horror movie, it would have been my pick for the classic, the newest horror movie you could consider a classic, but it's not. Okay, with nearly a thousand votes between them, we now have X and Pearl. And I think that makes sense because I think Ty West's House of the Devil is a masterpiece. So when you're betting on uh, whether a movie is going to become a masterpiece or a classic in the future, it's good to pick a movie from a director who's already directed a classic. And unfortunately, I think some of how X and Pearl will be received over time will be how he lands this plane with Maxine. And I'm not saying, unfortunately, like I'm predicting Maxine's going to be bad. I'm just saying sometimes it's unfortunate to have the fate of a movie somewhat tied to the fates of other movies around it. Okay, now we have to deal with the A24 of it all. And the reason I'm uh, putting this in a block is because a lot of people, when they voted, they lumped A24 movies together. So I had to count their comment as a vote for each movie so it all kind of split up i'll give you an example joseph johnson in his vote said a24 has just been a powerhouse when it comes to producing modern horror classics midsummer hereditary the witch and the lighthouse all spring to mind as some of the most thought-provoking horror films i have seen so those four films he mentioned were the ones that got the most votes and the order was lighthouse last then midsummer then the witch than hereditary and i personally would put the witch above them all as a matter of fact if i was taking the topic here as what's the most recent movie you could call a classic like the way i asked and not like betting on in the future but like just label it now the witch would have been my answer but i've also talked about the witch quite a bit on this podcast so i'm not going to belabor the point but a24 soaked up a ton of the votes now, in second place, we have Jordan Peele's Get Out. Now, Us got just as many votes, theoretically, on our page, but that's my fault. I got into a lot of arguments in the comment section about Us because I love that movie, and I know a lot of people hate it, and I got a lot of hate for it, but I love to debate, and it just drove the engagement on that. So there were a ton of reactions, but I'm throwing that out because that distorted. <laughs> That's my fault. I, I fucked up. But Get Out, obviously, was a flat-out masterpiece and kind of the movie I expected to be number one in the voting going into this. And I got to say, Nope got quite a few votes too, but not enough to kind of crack the tears we were talking about. But the number one vote-getter is 2016's Train to Busan. And it was just so obvious from the voting what was happening here. It had everything people want in a horror movie they're going to call a classic in the right proportions to have it. Like, Get Out is clearly a masterpiece, but I got the feeling from the people in the voting that it was a, kind of like a thriller to them with horror elements, a little bit horror adjacent. Um, not that scary, except for in a couple places or for obvious reasons. So, like, it was imbalanced somehow in a way as a horror classic, not as a classic classic. 
Conversely, I think a lot of people that were voting for hereditary were voting for it on the from the impact it had on them or how it spoke to them about things. Let's be real. We live in traumatizing fucking times. And this is a movie that deals really well and speaks to that subject. But even for the advocates of the movie, it feels a little slow in parts. Train to Basan just reminds me of that perfect like paper airplane you folded in school when you threw it and like set the record that the, that was good. everyone was going to talk about who saw it for the day that they couldn't believe something could fly that far because it was built just right. It has the perfect amount of action, the perfect amount of emotional impact and resonance, the perfect amount of gore. It's got a level of messaging that's serious, but it can also be incredibly fun. It's a great theater or group watch. It's an impeccable rewatch. It's not like it gets worse over time. If anything, it gets better. Acting, visuals, etc. You name it, it's got it. It's just so elegantly balanced. Train to Busan is the Horror Weekly community winner for what's the newest horror movie you could call a classic. Okay, I want to talk about now two movies that I think uh, 20 years from now are still going to be around, still discussed, and will be considered horror classics. The first one I'm going to talk about is last year's Bones and All, directed by Luca Guadagnino and starring Timothy Chalamet, Taylor Russell, Mark Rylance, Michael Stuhlbarg, Chloe Sevigny, Anna Cobb, Jessica Harper, amazing cast. Now, if you haven't seen this movie, it's basically a cannibal romance road movie. It's got a lot in common with Let the Right One In. It's got a lot in common with Near Dark. And I just think this movie is an absolute masterpiece. It's one of those things when you see it, you can't get it out of your head. I've been thinking about this movie ever since I watched it. I've seen it a few times now. It's beautiful to look at. It's authentically scary in parts. It's absolutely revolting in other parts it manages to do some world building and build even though this isn't probably going to be picked up on we're not going to get bones and all too i suspect and other movies aren't going to take this up but the eaters which is the central premise of this movie it's people who they're human i suppose i don't know it feels vaguely supernatural i know there's source material to this it's based on a i can't believe i'm saying this ya novel which is this is like a hard r movie so this is a pretty uh terrifying take on, on ya material but anyway the eaters have a little bit in common with zombies in the way that they feed and behave right but i can't believe i'm saying this since zombies go back virtually to the beginning of horror cinema but this movie has managed to do fresh and new things with this concept i'll give you my favorite example of it so marin the main character in this movie there's this amazing moment at the beginning of the film when it's just teenage girls hanging out uh talking to each other trying on different nail polish colors and all of a sudden marin bites her uh, ostensible friend's finger, not off, she strips it to the bone. We're not at the bones and all segment yet. And this is so unexpected and so out of nowhere and so horrifying that she runs home. And Marin's dad, who, when she comes in covered in blood, 
she doesn't have to say anything. She, he literally sees her and knows because he knows he's raising an eater. He knows he's raising a cannibal slash uh, alive zombie slash vampire. And her dad's like, we anything you can grab in three minutes, grab. We got to get out of here. We got to be out of here before the cops come because they're living on the run. Kind of like the father trial Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore situation in Firestarter. So they take off. And a little later in the movie, Marin's father abandons her and leaves a tape behind explaining her backstory, at least as much as he knows, which she gradually listens to throughout the film, which is an ingenious way to put exposition in there. And now that Marin's on her own, she road trips across the country to find her mom. And while she's on the first leg of that trip, she runs into the first other person like her, the other eater that we meet, which is a character named Sully, magnificently played by Mark Rylance. Just a hypnotic, incredible performance as Sully in this movie. And he takes Marin under his wing for the night, tells her kind of what eaters are, a little bit of what the rules are, and then brings her back and shows her they, they go to this house, and I think, I thought when I was watching, and I think Marin thinks that that's where Sully lives, but it's not. He can smell when people are about to die, and he doesn't like to kill, he says, doesn't like to kill people to eat them. He likes to wait till they're almost dead and just pass away, though, so they're still fresh, horrible. Um, so there's this woman lying in this house on the floor, dying of, I don't know, strokes, I suppose, and he's just waiting it out, waiting for her to die, and he's offering to split her. <laughs> share this this dying human with Marin. And they do that. They eat together. And then they sit there as the blood dries and the body cools, just talking. And also kind of like where you push back from a table after you've had a big meal and you like unbutton your pants maybe or you just let, you know, let out a big sigh. Like this is how they're acting. It's incredibly gross. But when I said... Let me give you an example of a way of taking the zombie-ish um, pr procedure and making it fresh. Later in the movie, it turns out that Sully has become very attached to Marin, very creepily attached. And when she presses him to explain why he's attached to her, why he's like fixated on her, he says to her, Something to the effect of we dried out together. I dried. I sat there and dried next to you. And the idea that that's a bonding moment, the idea that eaters, after they consume a human body, sitting around and just having the blood kind of congeal on their faces and cool in the in the in night air, the fact that that's. Uh, something that's something meaningful, even to one of them, even if he's crazy, is just something I've never heard in all the years and all the zombie movies and all the zombie cinema I've ever consumed. Like we're used to seeing blood spattered zombies with the blood all dry on their clothes and maybe like caked all around their faces and like whatever. Like that's that's bad enough. But the idea that when it's fresh, when it's new, that that is like a bonding moment between the... It's just an incredible new twist to that notion. Marin runs away from Sully, rightfully so, in the middle of the night. She sneaks out of the house where they just ate. 
goes and gets to the bus. Well, I think she gets it in the morning, but she gets on a bus and gets out of town. Sully sees that happen, by the way, and that plays in later. I'm going to try not to spoil everything here, but I can't promise because I'm so excited about this damn movie. But Marin goes off, and the next thing you know, she meets Timothy Chamelake's character, Lee, and now it's Marin and Lee as the central couple for most of the rest of the film. And by the way, in talking about this movie, because it's a longish movie, I'm leaving out so much greatness. I can't even do justice. to. I'm just going to be hitting the high points. So the next thing that makes this an amazing twist on uh, the zombie vampire, I don't know what to think of this, we'll just call it eaters, um, combination here, is they can smell each other. Sully teaches Marin that they can. That's how he finds her. He finds her in the middle of the night when she's waiting for the first bus out of town. And it, his appear, Sully's appearance out of, in the darkness out of nowhere here is just an incredible moment in visual, like one of the best character introductions in horror in recent memory. But Marin and Lee end up hanging out kind of like at the fringes like you'd expect of society. They're sleeping in the woods at one moment and then all of a sudden two guys just come out of nowhere holding like six packs of beer and with no reason to be in this place. And they are eaters too. And they're like, they approach them and like, we smelled you. We smelled you from far away. We smelled you downwind. And when this kept happening in this movie, people, listen to me, because it's so amazing when you think about it. I mean, being an outsider comes with all kinds of deficits. You don't have a support system or a community. You're isolated a lot. You're alone a lot. You're in dangerous situations where there's no one else to protect you a lot. The only thing it has going for it is you're left the hell alone. <laughs> but eaters don't get any of the benefits of that either. You could just be traveling or on your way to a town. And if another eater smells you, and eaters can harm each other. It's not like they're... It's not I, I like it's they can do violence to each other as well. So like you live alone, but you can't even be left alone because who knows around the corner is going to come maybe a threat, maybe a new friend for a moment. But it seems very unstable for eaters to be getting along with each other. Anyway, these two guys come out and this is where we got to talk about Michael Stuhlbarg because he plays Jake in this movie, along with David Gordon Green, um, the director who plays um, Jake's familiar. I can't, I would, this podcast would be too long if I went to all the details of how amazing the scene was. This is one of my favorite scenes I've seen in a horror movie in the last 10 years. It's um, quiet and cold, but also terrifying, but also super interesting. But this hangout session between these four characters, between Jake and his familiar, because the guy he's with is just a cannibal. He's just a human who likes to eat flesh, who's like an eater groupie. <laughs> He's like traveling with this eater, picking up scraps from the eater's kills. So they're sitting around a campfire, these four characters are and talking. And Michael Stuhlbarg steals the next five minutes of the movie. And he did that in Luca's last movie. It fascinates me. I would love, what a great job if you had the talent for it to be an actor that can come in and just do one scene in a movie and be super memorable and steal all the minutes that you're in and just get out. Like, not be in any other scenes of the movie, just a one-hitter. 
But his character is terrifying and smart. He's the Hannibal Lecter of this movie, if there is one. He's just so wise. He reads the dynamic between Marin and Lee faster than we as the audience read it. Because he makes a prediction about them that is going to come true. And the way he illustrates things, there's this, there's this moment where he tells Lee, you remind me of every addict I've ever known. You think you're on top of it. But if you just that one loose thread, you just pull it. And then you got to go look at the scene because whatever he does when he's with his hand in the air to illustrate what's going to happen to Lee in the future, like his prediction is the one of the most sinister body language hand gestures I've ever seen. Just exquisite acting here. So the campfire dies out and then the characters like camp away from each other. Marin's sleeping in the truck and then Lee wisely getting a read on the fact that these guys are a threat, even though they're currently sleeping. He slowly, quietly gets the truck into neutral, rolls it a little bit away. And next thing you know, you're looking and Jake is chasing after them in a leather face at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre moment that's filmed so beautifully. It's like a, a mini jump scare buried in a, in a longer, larger scare. Oh my God, so good. And the music, we've got like, while all this is happening, we've got like an 80s synthy music score from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that is perfect for this. Along with just like some westerny guitar action, just amazing stuff. Now we don't get any more of Jake in the movie because that's not like Michael Stuhlbarg is about. He just comes in for his one scene and leaves. But we do get more Sully, and it's an incredibly scary way because it turns out Sully has been tracking Marin the whole time. And when I rewatched Bones and All, it just felt like a hand is slowly tightening around my spine, realizing that all the scenes that I had seen the first time I watched it were scenes where she was getting spied on. She was being observed and it gives it just this extra layer of menace that you don't even realize is happening when you first watch this movie. And it's just the little touches with this film. The thing that Mark Rylance does, his character does with his, um, when he kills someone, he takes their hair and he adds it to a rope braid of hair that he's keeping in a bag. And the braid is just getting longer and longer with each person he eats. And there's going to be hair added to this rope later in this movie that we recognize. When that braid comes out and you see someone's hair that you know you know who that is, you see it added. So that death happens off screen, but having it presented to the audience in that way as an addition to that like python length trophy thing that um, Sully is building is blood curdling. And Taylor Russell is so amazing in this film. Just she sells all these moments like when she finally tracks down her mom and we realize her mom is eating her own hands off. It, it, these things could be so over the top, but her acting is so like grounded. She's thrown off in a lot of situations because she's, you know, been very sheltered by her dad. But so she has to transition 
because she has this inner confidence. Her character has this inner confidence. She doesn't back down a lot. She's a little confrontational. She's confrontational when she first buys her bus ticket in a great little kind of character touch moment in the movie. So, but she's still a little unsure because she's not very experienced. So she has to transition from like tentative to confident sometimes within seconds in the same scene. And that's so hard to do, but she's just nailing it. I love the opening shots of this movie, which are a fake out. I love the end of this movie, which is not a fake out. And this is a movie so gorgeous that I probably could just watch it in big chunks with the sound off. So Bones and All, to me, is the closest movie in time of anything that I've watched to something that I feel like I could bet money on will be a classic in the future. It has that thing I talked about at the beginning of this episode with David Cronenberg's The Fly, where it's just so much fun, even though it's grim, even though it can be slow in parts. There's just these outbursts of violence and interesting things happening and the messaging. I haven't even gotten to like the deep core messaging of this movie, which I'm not going to do in this podcast because it would take the whole episode. But it's it has all of these component parts that I feel like I can really believe in to sort of back it as a future classic. And, you know, the thing is, as with a lot of classics, like let's take 1981's Possession which is one of my favorite horror movies and is definitely a classic. It's not a movie I would recommend to everyone. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I have to need to know a lot about your movie taste before I could recommend Possession to you. And I think Bones and All is a movie that won't appeal to a certain set of the horror audience, and that's fine. But that doesn't have any bearing on whether it's going to be a classic or not. There's all kinds of classics. There's gory, fast-moving classics. There's slow burn, you know, thoughtful classics like Exorcist 3. There's all kinds. But regardless of whether you love this movie or hate this movie, if Bones and All wasn't for you, completely understandable. Still, to me, it's the the one that has the, the pieces to make it live for the next 50 years. The other possible modern classic I want to talk about is 2017's Pie Wackets. Starring Lori Holden as Mrs. Reyes and Nicole Munoz as Leah. Now, I have an on-again, off-again relationship with Hereditary. Um, it's, 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 sometimes it bothers me. I don't think I've ever successfully gotten through a full second watch of it, which is pretty unusual for me. I'm a pretty good and avid rewatcher of horror films. Um, and I love Pie Wacket. It's sort of pocket Hereditary. And I don't mean that in a diminishing way on on most days i think pie wacket is better than hereditary i definitely enjoy it better and i think it's equally as scary pie wacket is a terrifying film for the right kind of horror fan the synopsis of pie wacket is a frustrated angst-ridden teenage girl awakens something in the woods when she naively performs an occult ritual to evoke a witch to kill her mother the history of pie wacket as a demon is really interesting it was originally named in the book uh, Discovery of Witches by Montague Summers in, I think, 1647, definitely around 1650. And it's a figure who had um, knowledge of the Witchfinder General uh, Hopkins, who a lot of horror fans will know from the Vincent Price movie with the same name. Pie Wagon was also the name of the cat in Bell, Book, and Candle, and 
Kim Novak, who was in that movie, had an actual cat actually named Piwacket, which is cool. But in our 2017 movie, the demon Piwacket is portrayed. So, you know that Depeche Mode song, Your Own Personal Jesus? Piwacket's your your own personal devil. So the what Piwacket does is take the take. It's a mischievous demon. It, I mean, that's a light word for it. It's a trickster demon and it can take many forms, but it takes forms to try to confuse and lead you down the wrong path. The movie has a really interesting grasp of the occult and especially how it intersects with disaffected teenage culture. But it's the fact that Leah's whole like aesthetic, her look is mirrored by the demon that she summons. So it's a very occult looking demon because she's very into the occult. She's not dabbling like a lot of her other friends are. She's like very into it, kind of out of desperation and anger. So her demon ends up being like a distorted photo negative version of herself. And it's terrifying. And one of the other things I think is really special here is there's a line where Leah is hanging out with her friends at school and she went to school with these her friends and then her mom, the the, the family has lost the father and, and uh, husband. So they're both the mom and the daughter are dealing with grief or not dealing with it as the case may be. Um, and as part of dealing with it, the mom has moved them out of the house where they lived with her husband and taken them way out into the woods. So now she has to commute Leah, the, the, the kid has to commute to school hours back and forth each day. And she can't be as close to her friends after school as she usually could when they were there together. So there's a rift brewing and forming between her and her friends. And she's already got a rift with her mom. I mean, she's raising a demon to get rid of her mom. So she's clearly uh, on the outs with her. And there's this moment where everything's hanging in the balance, where we don't know if the friends are going to stick by her. We don't know if the mom is going to get worse and worse. There's a moment in this movie where the mom says a truly evil line to her daughter, where she says to Leah, your, your face reminds me of your father's face. I wish I could just wipe it off. It was, it, it was, I remember the first time I saw it, having like doing an audio double take at that line. Did I hear that right? But Leah's here hanging out with her friends. And one of her friends says, are our parents always going to be our parents? And the other one of the other in the group of friends is like, what the fuck does that mean? And it's an interesting construct. Right. And she tries to explain it. And I don't know that she explains it particularly clearly or co coherently, but what she seems to mean by it is they're just regular people. Maybe like, let's say your, your, your mom was named <laughs> Chloe. Like when's, will the day ever come where you don't think of her as mom and you just think of her as Chloe? Like when does she become just a person and not a parent? But I think Piwacket in a very genius way explores that concept but spreads it out through the movie so you can do it with every kind of character it's not just are our parents always going to be our parents are our friends always going to be our friends because clearly not because what happens in this movie is once the demon is successfully summoned although leah doesn't know she's successfully summoned it yet 
um, things change again. Her mom starts to get better and behave better and get way nicer. And they actually start to get close and bond. Meanwhile, her friends start to act as like dicks to her or get super erratic or get targeted by the demon when they come over to visit Leah at her place in the woods and get so terrified they turn into like blubbering, like they turn into clear rivers from Final Destination hiding in a room like padded and blocked in out of fear of whatever they saw, whatever form Piwack it took for them. So we've got our parents always going to be our parents, our friends always going to be our friends. And then the deepest question, are you always going to be you? I know I am certainly not now what I thought I was going to be when I was Leah's age, 17. Like everything is a lot more slippery in Piwacket than it seems on the surface, but it's not in your face about it. It's not overladen with it. So if you want the things you get out of Hereditary without the convoluted nature of Hereditary, you know, there's sometimes where you just want like a really elegantly mixed drink at that cocktail party. There's sometimes you just want whiskey neat. Piwacket is whiskey neat. It also does something I love, which is something the the Ninth Gate also did really well, which is when you're going to have an occult book in your movie, it better be an impressive occult book. And the occult, there's an author of a book on the occult in this movie that actually might make the situation worse. He actually tells Lee at one point, Piwak, it can take many forms. Don't trust your lying eyes, which I think just serves to make her more paranoid. She's like the crew in the thing <laughs> all of a sudden looking all around her, like not knowing who Piwak it is hiding as. But there's a line in the book that says, they say it in the movie, which is, um, something to the effect of, I don't think the devil's on earth to create evil. I think the devil is on earth to reveal the evil that's already there. And Piwacket definitely seizes on this moment of evil wish casting by Leah that she immediately, almost immediately regrets and certainly takes back and takes the evil that is revealed and Unfold it, unfolds it like an absolutely horrifying black flower to cover everyone that comes into Pie Wackett's path. But since Hereditary got so many votes as the movie that probably is going to be the one from this time that's looked back on as a classic in so many years, it immediately occurred to me, wait, Pie Wackett's just as good. It came out around the same time and is on basically the same subject. And has a much better executed and way more terrifying, at least to me, ending. Now, granted, the lead up to the ending in Hereditary is very scary. And the background, you know, lurking things are very scary, etc. I had problems with the whole Paimon or Paimon, however you say that. <laughs> it's funny, I can easily say Piwagon, but not whatever that thing was. The, the point is... Like it lost me a little at the end. Uh, I know there's a lot of horror fans who think that's a magnificent ending, and I can see it. I'm not arguing it. I'm just saying Pie Wagon is so much more straight to the point of what the movie was building up to and visually just almost sickening and hard to watch. And I'm not going to entirely spoil it, but there's, you know, we're talking about identity kind of like malforming and getting misshapen and Pie Wacket turning into like a distorted version of Leah. Well, Leah's mom also turns into a distorted version of herself involuntarily. And I've never, ever forgotten the feeling I had 
when that happened and this movie ended, which happens quick, it comes like a freight train at the end. Um, that feeling is just it's so distinct to me. I saw this when it came out, and from that moment to this moment I'm talking to you on the podcast, that impact, the power of that impact moment has not changed for me. So between myself and the Horror Weekly community, we've got a lot of suggestions for uh, modern uh, classics, and I want to know what yours are, ones we've missed. Definitely message the Horror Weekly Facebook page or tell us on threads or create your own uh, original uh, post in the Horror Weekly Facebook group with that question so I can see it. I also want to say real quick, there have been so many incredible, thoughtful, interesting, um, helpful to me reactions on the Spotify platform. So there's a Q&A feature that's enabled on this podcast if you listen to it on Spotify. And I've seen a lot of comments there. You're not going to believe this. I wouldn't believe it. I actually contacted Spotify because I didn't believe it. But you can't reply, <laughs> apparently, there. So I can't reply to those there. But I will reply to some of them in the upcoming weeks. I can't backtrack and do them because there's been so many now that um, I <laughs> it would be the whole episode. But I will, as an ongoing prospect, now that I know that they can't be replied to for sure, I will reply to some of them in this. But thank you so much for putting them there. I also want to say real quick, we evened out uh, at four point rating on Apple, which is the same rating we have on Spotify. We were at 4.7 4. and a few more five star reviews came in, put us over the top. I'm so grateful. I want to thank Jill Dill for taking the time, not just to give a five star review, but also to write out some kind words saying that she looks forward to the show every week. Thank you so much. And noticing again that what this podcast is doing is interacting with the community on the pages that we run and saying that that's a great feature of it which i agree it's basically the only feature of it so thank you to everyone who joined the subscription group thank you to everyone who's leaving kind reviews to help this thing propel this thing forward the more reviews the more notice the more notice the more time i'll get to do it so thank you so much for that and until next wednesday have a great Horror Week.